when we don't see results right away, we give up, right? But it's like, it's about like finding those like micro kind of like successes to keep you going. Because in this world of like hitting all of these big numbers and stuff, we forget the responsibility we have as podcasters, which is telling stories. Podcast Junkies, episode 213. Welcome back. If you are new to the show, this is the one where I speak to some of the most interesting folks in the podcasting world, Podosphere, as I like to call it. Last week was no exception. I had a great conversation, essentially what I called a masterclass in monetizing your podcast with Colin Morgan, host of the Daily Grind podcast, episode 212. Make sure you check that out. Been getting a lot of good feedback from that show. This week, I get to speak to Sachit Gupta, host of the Conscious Creators podcast. Sachit and I connected probably a, a couple of weeks ago, maybe even a month ago now at this point, when I was doing a little bit of research into Platforms Media, and I reached out and we had an initial conversation, and which turned into a longer one, which turned into an invite to Podcast Junkies. I was fascinated uh, at initially by our conversations at what he had done, and I knew it was going to require the full hour to tell his story. It's a fascinating one. It's about how he connected early on in the podcasting space with Andrew Warner, and then subsequently with the likes of Tim Ferriss and Seth Godin. It's really an inspiring story. I invite you to sit back, have your favorite podcasting cocktail handy. But first, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Focusrite and the Scarlet 2i2 third-generation sound card. Always have good things to say about the convenience and the quality of this product. Shout out to Dan Hewley from the Focusrite team. They've been a great supporter of the show for a while now. If you need a way to boost your sound, as well as the ability to individually monitor both your microphone and headphone outputs, I can't say enough good things about this sound card. Head on over to podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite. And you'll be taken to the Focusrite for Podcasters page, which they've created specifically to answer a lot of the questions that podcasters have about the gear. As of this recording, the Podcast Movement Evolutions Conference is going on in Los Angeles. I unfortunately couldn't make it out to the conference, so I have a bit of podcasting FOMO, so I'm getting some feedback from some of my friends that are there this week. As we hear back from any new developments or companies, I'll be sure to share that with you in an upcoming episode. This episode is also brought to you by Fullcast, our full-service done-for-you podcast production agency. If you need help starting a show or have some consulting questions related to your existing show, feel free to set up a free chat with me at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. That's chat 15. One of the things I really love about this conversation with Sachet is how he discussed the ups and the downs, the things that worked, the things that didn't work as he was starting to find his way in this digital marketing podcast world and some of the interesting things that he put into practice and and who he was following at the time and who he was inspired by as he made his way to building his business. And I love that he's not afraid to share some of the things that are working for him now. It really speaks to his abundance mindset, which I love. Make sure you stay till the end of the episode for this week's retention hashtag. But for now, let's get to creating consciously with Sachet. So Sachit Gupta, host of the Conscious Creators Show, thank you for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Thank you for having me on, Harry. And uh, I love what you're doing, which is having like people who are always used to being, being behind the mic and asking other people questions, bringing them on to share their story. I love that mission. Yeah, thanks for finding the time. And 
I love because this is a show about podcasting and it's listened to by a lot of podcasters. A lot of times I love sharing like a little bit of behind the scenes about like even us like trying to figure out settings because we're we're using like a lot of different tools and I like using um, we're using crisp now. Uh, I've talked a bit a lot on the show uh, with a K crisp.ai and we're also using Squadcast. So sometimes getting all those pieces working together, I think as podcasters, we can relate. So maybe we can kick off uh, with you in terms of like your your podcasting journey. Did you start um, as a as a fan of actual podcasts yourself? Yeah, and I want to quickly mention something on the thing that you meant, talked about before, which is like figuring out the the settings and stuff. I think yeah. creators and podcasters, like especially newer ones, have this misconception that everything is perfect and you have to wait for perfection to like actually take action. I, I remember like one of the first interviews I did in person, I had bought these like two really fancy mics and had like connected them to my laptop through USB. And guess what? Didn't work. <laughs> Only one work. And it's funny, I actually shot a time lapse of us doing the interview. Oh, really? In the time lapse, it's me and the guest and two mics on the table, but only one of them is working. And we're both kind of like leaning into the same mic. And then two weeks later, someone's like, the audio quality was really good. It's like, and I think like, I think it's important to share these stories because there's this mis- misconception that like everything is perfect and it's not. Yeah. Because it stops creators from creating. That's exactly right. And I think every single podcaster, I, I don't know any that do not like their first episode, do not like the sound of their voice. You know, the, the, we hear all these things. And I think people who are new to the space think they need to have everything perfect before they record their first episode. Yeah, exactly. And then to back to your original question, which is, yeah, um, I started out as a fan of uh, this podcast called Mixergy back in college. And that was 10 years ago. It's been a long time. Wow. But yeah, I remember just looking for entrepreneur stories, found Mixergy and um, really just loved his content and um, wanted to start something out of college, but didn't end up doing that, ended up going to the corporate world and spent a year and did not like it. I knew the first day I was going to leave. Left after I literally gave my notice a year and two days in wow. uh, just to make sure I did a year because it was tied to like relocation stuff and all. I don't want to deal with that. And then I moved to San Francisco and started emailing all of these companies. And basically my pitch was, uh, which is pioneered by Charlie Hohen, who wrote the book recession-proof graduate, hey, I want to work with you. I want to work, I'll work with you for free. Just give me a shot. Emailed hundreds of companies, got a lot of rejections. And one of the people that I'd emailed that said yes was Andrew Warner, who had the podcast called Mixergy. And that was the start of the podcast journey. A couple of things in there that are interesting. Where were you re- relocating from? I went to college in Pittsburgh. And when I worked at GE Capital, I was in Connecticut. Okay. So basically, Pittsburgh to Connecticut. And that was the last time I lived in snow. <laughs> <laughs> and then you relocated. What was it that was pulling you to San Francisco? Um, one, definitely I had family there. And so okay. my brother was there and he'd been involved in different tech companies. And I think just this like allure of like moving out west, right? Like the tech gold rush and like just every all the, the whole story around tech. Like 10 years ago, it was, um, I remember watching South by Southwest. I remember watching like TechCrunch Disrupt. And sitting in my dorm room in college, and I was like, I want to be a part of that. Yeah, those are, I remember those were crazy days, pets.com and all these companies, like literally all you needed to have. And that was towards the end of it because I, I, I was, I actually left my job at, uh, I was in JP Morgan Chase and I left for a, a non paying job at a, at a tech startup. When, when was uh, that for you? 98. 
Oh wow. 99. Yeah, I was I was, I saw everything that was happening and I think just like you I was just like I need to be a part of this. It was from like a lat- Latino portal and so we got in probably like two, a year or two late cuz we, we were trying to get some funding but it didn't pan out. It was a fantastic learning experience. I those some of those magazines that um, were coming out were really fascinating. I was reading all about like just everything that was happening in that startup space. And, you know, a, a couple of great companies obviously were born out of that. But it is basically the equivalent of the gold rush. And I think we're, we keep seeing different waves of it. You mentioned at the time you were listening to a lot of uh, podcasts and looking for shows about entrepreneurship. Is that something that is like in, in your genes, like this, this that entrepreneurial spirit? You know, I've, I've thought about that a lot recently. And I think, yeah, going back to when I was a kid, I remember like first or second grade, um, Growing up in India, two of my uncles, my mom's brothers, one had moved out to uh, the U.S. to start a cabinet company. And one in the 80s, when it was a desert, went to Dubai to start a ball bearing company. Wow. And I remember when they would come back, visit us back in India and just kind of like the stories they would tell and seeing how people responded to them. And I think looking back now in hindsight, that probably like put the seeds in my brain. And obviously like my my dad and all my uncles growing up, like they all had their own companies um, in ball bearings, which is really interesting because I know a lot about it, just kind of like being in that. But I think like now looking back in hindsight, that was probably the genesis of that and always sort of knew this is what I was going to do. What's a fun fact about ball bearings that you can share with us? <laughs> so I'll share a story actually. So they're, they're sold with these like numbers, like there's all these codes, like six digit codes, codes about ball bearings. And literally like, they would just pass Excel files with like all these rows of like different codes, like two to six zero three X or whatever. And um, speaking with my uncles now, they're like, yeah, they still sometimes get nightmares about like remembering the numbers because that's all they did for so long. Is that common? I'm, I'm, I can, I'm come from um, like a Hispanic background. I was born in El Salvador. So in terms of like the culture of like wanting to see your kid go to college, wanting to see your kid become like a, a professional, whether that's a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And I know from speaking to a lot of friends um, who have parents who are, who, or who come from different cultures as well, that that's a lot of pressure. And so you moving into the entrepreneurial space, I don't know if that's common or maybe the fact that you had uncles and family members who had sort of like been been at the frontier with, with that in terms of your family. Um, what was the, the feedback from your family when you started going out and, and doing this entrepreneurial stuff? Yeah, Indian families wanting their kids to be doctors and lawyers never happens, right? <laughs> um, no, that was definitely the case. Uh, actually, when I moved, I started as a computer science major. And I remember um, like a year in, I was like, this is not what I want to do. I want to switch to information systems. So so that was like the first block. And they were like, parents were like, what? But okay, it's similar. And then um, I actually got into this in my junior year of college. For my senior year, this, it was this combined program where basically I could get a master's by staying just an extra six months because in my senior year i would just take grad level classes yeah like you said like coming from an indian background or whatever getting a bachelor's and master's together that's like that's like hitting gold right so i got into that program and then i remember six months in or maybe a little more i was doing interviews for internships because i was gonna have an internship right after college and it was all with all of these like consulting companies and just banks and stuff and i remember just looking at that and being like do I see myself doing that in like six years yeah. or 10 years? And the answer was no. And another thing I was doing at that point was a friend and I had actually started the TEDx conference at Carnegie Mellon. And so I saw myself self spending way more time on that than any like 
college classes. So I walked into the dean's office and I was like, I'm going to drop out of the master's. And then I called my parents. Mm. I think I think I called them after, <laughs> from what I remember. And they were like, "I was going to ask you which, which what the order of that was because you were probably nervous about both aspects oh, yeah. of it." And if, <laughs> but I mean, I think they were just like, "Okay, well, he's going to keep doing these things." Yeah. And I think that's just kind of in the story, like getting a corporate job and quitting after a year and going to. I remember calling my parents. I was like, "I quit my job, and I could do the smart thing and get another job, or I could, um, or I told them like I could get another job, or I want to go travel and I have some savings." I was like, so I'm going to do the smart thing. And I booked a one-way ticket to Bangkok. And <laughs> they weren't happy about that. How long were you there? I went to Bangkok for about a month. And then I went to Bali. That's also another crazy story. I was in Bali. I had, had travel insurance when I was in Bangkok and didn't use it. So I was like, I don't really need this. And I went to Bali, didn't have that. And about 10 days in, dislocated my shoulder. Um, oh, no. And that was a crazy experience, just being in a country where you don't know anyone and you have to go to the hospital and make sure they don't overcharge you. And what's the short story or the quick story on how you dislocated your shoulder? Um, we were basically going from one town to another on a bike and okay. someone else was driving and I was sitting on back and it's kind of like making a turn and it slipped and I fell and I mean, I had helmets and everything, but just wow. everything was good, but I felt at a weird angle and boom. Was that your first time in that part of the world, like in Bangkok and Bali, like and, and seeing like uh, that culture? And was it anything of a culture shock, or what, what was that? What was your first experience or your first thoughts when when you landed there and you started spending some time there? Yeah, definitely a culture shock because I'm pretty sure it was my first time visiting there. I'd been to like on trips to like Hong Kong and stuff mm -hmm. with my parents, and I, I guess one thing that was different was um, growing up. I'm just remembering this now. It's interesting. So my mom had gone, my mom and my, one of my uncles had gone to this boarding school mm. in India where they had met this family from Thailand um, and they were, became really close. So their kids would visit us in India all the time. Right? Oh, wow. So I just sort of learned and absorbed culture from them probably. So it wasn't as much of a culture shock because we knew someone there. Yeah. In, um, in 2004, I went to Thailand for the first time because I had met a friend of a friend that I had met in Amsterdam years before we kept in touch. And this is like through email back and there's no Facebook back then. <laughs> it was just strictly emails. So he told me that he had, uh, his parents had a house in Koh Samui and he had, a, and he said, come visit. So I was like, yeah, sure. So I basically went, it took me 26 hours to get there from New York at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, I took a, a plane from New York to uh, Frankfurt, I think it was. And then from Frankfurt to Singapore and from Singapore, I took a, a flight to um, Suratani, which is like a coastal city. And then I took a ferry for like an hour to Koh Samui. And I remember being on that ferry and thinking, if this ferry sinks, like nobody in the world knows where I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember doing that exact trip, I think in reverse, going from Koh Samui back to Bangkok. Yeah. The ferry and everything. But it was it was just, it was the first time I really felt like I was like in a completely different culture because normally like if I'm in a culture where it's like even Italian or, or Spanish or Portuguese because I, I speak the language, I can kind of relate. But there I was just like, I don't know a thing you're saying and even the colors and the food and everything. It was just, a, we were riding like mopeds with like no shirt on around town going to visit like the temples. It was, it was a, a definitely eye-opening experience. So I, I had a lot of fun when I was there. So I'm always asking like how much of a shock, but I think for you, since you had that interaction with that family, that must have been pretty special. One thing I would add to that is also like just growing up in India and, and moving to the U.S. You, the more you do it, the more you get used to it. And I think that actually translates a lot to the work that I do because when you move from one place to another, right, it questions a lot of assumptions that you have. Mm. Like I remember 
uh, I think this was either when we were visiting the U.S. before when I moved to the U.S. I remember going to McDonald's and ordered food and then they gave us the cup for the drink and they give us the cup and it's empty. I'm like, wait, where's my drink? And they're like, oh, you can just go. I'm like, wait. And they're like, yeah, it's free refills. And I'm like, wait, free refills? <laughs> if you did that in Asia, like one family would show up with like one cup for everyone. And so I think like it's it's when you move around that much, you learn to just question assumptions because really like what people think are rules is just sort of made up by a human. Yes, exactly. It sounds like your parents did a little bit of traveling, so you got a lot of cultural experiences uh, through them as well. Yeah, we used to, um, because my uncle had moved to the US, um, this is really funny now you think about it. Now that I think about it, or think back about it, we were, they, he moved to Omaha. So we did a lot of summer trips to the US from India, but they were all to Omaha. <laughs> and so my idea of what America was for a long time, until I put two and two together, it was like, is this Omaha? Like, it's all farms uh, and stuff. Wow. Until I was like, wait, I'm watching these TV shows. There's other parts of the U.S. It's so funny because when I talk to people who come from other countries, their first impression of, of the U.S. is is um, Baywatch. Yep. And they're like, oh, like every, everyone looks like they're on Baywatch. And then they get here and they arrive in places like Omaha and they're like, wait, wait, what happened? Like, where's like David Hasselhoff and where's <laughs> Pamela Anderson? Yeah. And that, the, and th well, you actually had the, the, the reverse effect, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, a lot of time in Omaha. <laughs> so when you when you got to uh, San Francisco and you you started, you know, putting the feelers out for for who you wanted to work with, and then you had a, a call back from Andrew Warner. He's got a very popular podcast called Mixer G. Um, can you talk at, just at a high level what that experience was was, was like and what, what you learned from him? Yeah, and I, with that I can go into specifics. Um, it was basically like um, I remember I sent him an email and I was like, hey. Um, work for you for free or whatever and we, i remember we did a call and like he was like these are really great ideas and my company isn't ready to hire you and i'd gotten all of these no's and i'm like this is probably the politest rejection someone's given me and so a few months later he was actually moving to san francisco from dc mm. and he sent me a message being like hey like do you want to meet up and so we met up we didn't really talk work and he was working of this place out of this place or offices called regis and they had this thing called a business lounge membership which was i'd gone for free through, through like credit card deals yeah so i was like you know like being close to someone is important so i just started like kind of like working from regis i didn't really have clients i was applying for jobs <laughs> but it looked like i was um and i remember one day he was like he was putting together this project and he's like hey do you want to help me for this it ended up being two hours and i was like I'll do it for free whatever and he's like no i want to pay you so he paid me 200 dollars. yeah um i think it was like 100 dollars an hour which i looking back i just made up that rate when you asked me to have <laughs> something and that was the start of our relationship and, and we can kind of, kind of like go into specifics of what i did or whatever you want to talk about but yeah it, that was the start and he's still a client eight years later that's an amazing story yeah so to to the extent that you want to go into specifics i think it'll be helpful but like what type of stuff did you start working on because eight years is a long time and obviously anyone mm -hmm. who's familiar with his show has seen how his show has grown and it was i mean it already had some traction because you had found the show and he's one of the early pioneers in podcasting so i'm wondering um, what types of stuff you worked on because uh, um, I, I think it'd be pretty interesting for the listener yeah, so it started off, and I, I think one of the, the biggest misconceptions people have is like, when they look at the, a podcaster, they're like, the podcast is the only thing that they do, right? But the best people use it as a channel for like a lot of other stuff. Totally. So with Andrew, like he was had courses and had Mixergy Premium, and really like the, for the first year, my rule was, 
and we didn't even have a title. And later on, we made it it's called like Director of Special Projects, which I got from what Charlie Hohen did with Tim Ferriss. And it was just doing whatever he wanted me to do. So like, I'll help build a website for um, one of his courses, TrueMind. At some point, it was like, hey, like I'm trying to like systemize this company. So can you help work with people to create SOPs? That was probably the least favorite thing that I did because that's I realized like that's not how my brain works. And then um, at some point, I remember um, looking at sponsorships and seeing that the sponsor that Andrew talked about in the interview and the one in the show notes didn't match. Mm. And so I sent Andrew an email being like, hey, just an FII, you, want, you might want to fix this. And um, I got a sense from his reply that he didn't want to deal with sponsorship. And because I had proven myself on like other stuff, I was like, hey, can I take a track track at this? Don't pay me up front. Give me a percentage and we'll figure it out. And he's like, sure, because he didn't want to keep dealing with it. And I think like talking to him afterwards, I was realized like he was expecting maybe a 20, 30% improvement. So what I did was I, I talked to first like a few of his friends, like Sam Parr, who runs The Hustle, to just kind of like think about how to do sponsorship. I remember emailing Pat Flynn and Pat Flynn is so generous. He was like, oh, you worked with Andrew, anything for Andrew. And like mm. got on the call with me, shared whatever he was doing. And I saw like the sponsorships were being sold by a CPM. But because I came from a marketing background, I'm like, wait, but if it leads to more ROI, why are we selling on a CPM? So the first sponsor we talked to, TopTel, uh, I was just like, hey, like from a marketing perspective, what are you guys' like acquisition costs? And then we're like, yeah, like so like based on sort of what the acquisition cost is, do, do you think they'll give you like five or six customers a month? And they're like, yeah, like that seems very likely. I'm like, okay, so let's just multiply that. And that number, like, does this seem fair for like a month of sponsorship? And they were like, yeah. So that's how I sold my first one. In that conversation, what I did, I doubled the rates. Wow. Just because we went from like CPM to just like ROI based. Yeah. And um, to their credit, like TopTel has been an amazing company to work with. Andrew, because of the audience of Mixergy, obviously like we delivered. And um, that was the first sponsor I signed for Mixergy and they are still a sponsor. I'm sure they appreciate the fact that they started working with you guys early. <laughs> Yeah, and and anything like really shifting the conversation from CPM to ROI, um, it just changes that dynamic because we're not like tied to like, hey, these many episodes are this. It's like, what do we do to give you an ROI? And like if if like now like if something doesn't work, um, we'll add in more stuff. So like last year we started sending emails to the Mixergy list as a test to see if that would move the needle for a sponsor, and it did. And now we build it into the plan. So I think it's just really about experimenting with other stuff besides the podcast to make sure you deliver an ROI. So then as, as you started working with Andrew, did you start to just grow that as much as you could? And then was there a transition when you decided that it might make sense for you to start working with other podcasters? Yeah. Um, so when I started working with Andrew, I was still sort of like a consultant. And I think anyone who's done consulting or whatever has been through that phase. Like when they start, they're doing so many different things, right? So like I remember there was a point um, in 2015 where I was managing sponsorships for Mixergy. I was building websites for people. I was working with this energy drink brand in India where I was running like their Facebook ads and like their whole funnel and stuff. It's like, this is too crazy. Like <laughs> I can't manage all of it. And it was just me, like one person with like maybe a few contractors in some places uh, for like the website stuff. The energy drinks weren't helping you? <laughs> they were in India, so I didn't even have them. Like whenever my cousin who ran that like would visit the US, I'm like, bring some for me because they're really good. So around like August 2015, I'm like, I'm going to like niche down and just pick podcasts. And so that's when I made a decision. Okay, like these these are the people I were like working with. And this is just what's going to be my focus. And then did you start to get introduced to other podcasters through the relationship with Andrew? And then 
was there a moment when you did, when it made sense for you to to start doing your own thing? Yeah. So, um, and this is a crazy story where like, so I made that decision to like start focusing on podcasts, and I came back um, to San Francisco and I started like just sending emails to friends. And uh, one of the friends I emailed was Ned Dwyer, who used to run this company called Elto. And he was like, hey, well, have you worked with Tim Ferriss? And I, I can't go into the specifics of what we did, but I was like, no, but like that that would be like the dream client. And hopefully I can work with him in like one to two years. Um, and what, or three what, years, and what year right? was like, this then? So just so people have some context. Yeah, this is um August of 2015, okay. August or yeah. September. And so Ned was like, well, what's the angle? I'd love to make an intro. And so I told, and I'd just like done this thing with Mixergy where basically in one day we stole 70,000 in sponsorships. Mm. And that was more than Andrew had done like the year before. Yeah. So it was just insane. We we're like, what just <laughs> happened, right? So I I'd recorded a case study with Andrew and I sent it to Ned and he's like, okay, this actually is good. I'll make the intro. And I remember going, Ned, um, I sent him an email. I'm like, but like, just wait for a little bit because I wanted to make sure I'm ready for it, right? It's like, it's like one shot. And what happened interestingly was someone else had told Tim's team about me. Mm. Um, and I later found out it was through Charlie Hohen. Oh, yeah. And the reason for that was, and, and quick tangent because I think it's important. So Charlie wrote Recession Proof Graduate yeah. while, while I was in college about how he worked with Ramit Sethi and all. And I remember emailing him just asking him questions. And then I used his book to work with Andrew and I always kept him updated on what I was doing. Because mm. I think like people miss that like the creators that you are passionate about, they actually like hearing stories of people using their stuff. That's, that's a good so point. Build a relationship, just like send an email and be like, hey, I read your book and this is what I use. Like I think if this is the only thing people get away from this, yeah. they'll just build a much better relationship with creators and creators will feel better, right? Yeah, it's one of the, it's, it's basically like we all stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And so like we learn mm -hmm. from people that have gone before us and I think giving them credit for how they've either inspired us or something we've used. I think sometimes as creators, we, we put stuff out there and we're like, is anyone using my stuff? Is anyone, does it resonate with anyone? Is, is anyone getting value from this? And to your point, yeah. I think not enough people go back to these creators and say, hey, like, hey, I read your book or, hey, I listened to your podcast or, hey, I, I did your program and it worked. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure you feel that. I'm, I'm curious, like if, if people are listening to this and they actually learned something. Yeah. Uh, feel free to email both of us because I respond to most emails, just especially if someone's like, oh, I, I listened to you, you on this podcast. Right. So I just kept Charlie updated. And I think what happened was Charlie had done really well with Tim. And I think Tim's team was looking for someone like him. And they emailed Charlie and they were like, hey, who do you recommend? And he recommended me. So literally... About a month from when I had emailed Ned, I think, like, I, timeline isn't completely mm -hmm. exact, but about about a month, I wake up to an email in my inbox and it says, inquiry from Tim Ferriss. <laughs> it's like, what is happening? Uh, this is insane. That's awesome. And so um, we did a call and then we met in person and obviously went through the process and um, ended up becoming, he ended up becoming a client a month or two after I decided to focus on podcasting and Sweet. just had this incredible experience working with him and helping him grow his audience and podcasts with Facebook ads and stuff. And yeah, it was just a huge privilege to like have that experience. Can you talk a little bit, not the specifics, but can you talk a little bit about what you learned uh, from someone like Tim? Because I think we see it from the exterior. A lot, a lot of people know, and obviously people who have read his books know the discipline that he puts in. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, we got a peek at it from learning from Charlie um, and I'm familiar with his story as well. But since you had the opportunity to work with him, what are some takeaways that you learned from how he, you know, how he runs his business or how he lives his day to day that were valuable for you and, and, and that you carry forward to this day? Yeah. So I'll actually translate, like, because I also worked with Andrew and then working with Tim led to working with Seth Godin. So I'll, I'll kind of like combine them all so it's not just sure. one person and yeah. just like lessons. 
I think like the first lesson was sort of what we started with, which is I went in expecting that like everyone thinks to be completely perfect, right? And the thing that I've now realized, it's never like that, right? Like if you look at like Pat Flynn or Jordan Harbinger, like yeah. all creators, like we expect like looking from outside that everything's great. It's not, right? Like your company, people are like, oh, podcast junkies, everything is running smoothly. You're like, no, it's not. Um, there's always yeah. fires. And, and I think it's, it's important to say this out loud because a lot of people don't start because they wait for perfect. Exactly. Exactly. But that's never going to happen yeah. because even the people that you idolize, they're not there yet. Yeah. So that was one. I think another thing was just, I believe the standards and goals that you set for yourself are really important. And I think working with Tim and seeing, and I think you can see this from the outside too, is um, learning a different standard to operate on. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like people know the, the reach he has and the um, audience he's built. And I remember like initially when I talked to their team, I was like, what's the goal? And they're like, we want to grow this. And so like someone like who's already there, they're like, they still want to grow. They still want to reach more people. Right. And it just shows you they're like, oh, maybe I'm thinking too small. Mm, maybe I need to think bigger. Interesting. So that was an interesting lesson. And I think one lesson just sort of like observing him work, which I really appreciate is what I realized is like people who are at the top are the best. They know what they're good at. And for everything else, they find the best people. Mm. I'm not saying I was the best, but like <laughs> they find people who are yeah. good at what they do. And then they give them the room to do it. And I think sometimes what happens is when you're a creator and like you're starting to grow, as you start giving things away, you either don't hire the best and I've made that mistake or you like hire people and then you don't give them the freedom. And I've also made that mistake, right? So just kind of like seeing that was really interesting because the best people will find other best people and trust them. And it's also room to make some mistakes at times to grow and to also experiment, I think is really important as well. Yeah, and I think like for example, like if you're hiring someone from who's a marketer for your company, if they're not making any mistakes, that actually I think means they're scared to experiment. That's a good point. Because of the conditions you've you've set. Great point. Right? So like because in marketing, like as we know, not everything works. And and you want to have that room for people to do that. Anything else in terms of what you learned from um, working with folks of that caliber? I think this is probably a general life lesson and it's gonna sound really simple. But um I think we're in this weird world where like everyone's trying to do Facebook ads and funnels and like you go on LinkedIn and you get all these spammy messages. Again, I've made those mistakes too, right? Like spammy emails and stuff. If I look back, all these clients that I worked with, all of this stuff came through relationships, right? Like starting my own podcast now, like I've been lucky enough to like start with a really good group of guests just from the start. None of that was from Facebook ads. All of just this that was spending the time over like the last five, 10 years building relationships. And, and I think it's seeing like people, one of the things I saw was like how people built relationships and um, just taught long-term. Like uh, one, one story for me for working with Andrew was, I remember this is a really early on, like probably the first three months of working with him because I used to work in the office with him. I remember he was doing an interview and a founder came on and Andrew, I think like was like, I don't know if this is a good fit for Mixergy because there's like revenue numbers that Mixergy has as a qualifier. And he was like, what do you want to see? And I was like, here's my PayPal, here's whatever you need. And no, like you need to sign an NDA or whatever, right? Because mm -hmm. that was the trust Andrew had built with his audience, with people. Mm. And um, the value he put on that because you can build a reputation and it takes a long time and in five minutes you can ruin it, Yeah. right? Um, I think that's a quote from Warren Buffett actually. Yep. So just seeing how 
value how people how they all valued the relationships. I think that was really key. Was this around the time that you basically formalized your own production company? I wouldn't even, I didn't even think about it as a production mm-hmm. company. I was just sort of really like more of a solo consultant. Okay. Had about three to five clients at a time because I didn't really want to grow it beyond that. Yeah. Um, now I realize like my I'm just not the systems guy and yeah. have to partner with people who do that, but you guys do it really well. Yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't even think about it as a production company. It was just me finding people I was inspired by, finding messages that I was inspired by, and helping take that to more people. Like that was just that was a thesis. So you're working with the, some of the the top podcasters in the in the industry. Um, when did the light bulb go off for you that this is something that you wanted to do and you now wanted to get behind the mic? Um, it was definitely a really hard journey for that. Um, I remember 2016, like reaching a point where I was working with all of them, right? And um, and a lot of this I've actually figured out in the last year. The story that I actually had driven a lot of that was. I didn't believe my skill set or creative stuff or marketing was good enough because mm. every creator faces the good enough story. Yeah. So the only way I could prove that wrong was working with the best. And then I got it and I was like, wait, what do I do next? Like, what's next? Right? Because it's really easy to like just put another person. And I did that. I'm like, oh, wait, okay. Now, like, is the next target Richard Branson? You have to do marketing <laughs> exactly. for him to tell me if I'm good, right? Like, or like these big brands. I'm like, this is never going to end. And last it was more of a personal journey of figuring out sort of like these motivations and realizing like, yeah, when I was a kid, I actually used to like love painting and I stopped because I didn't think my paintings were good. Mm. And so that story had always been like always there. And I was like, as soon as I realized it was more related to fear, I'm like, I have to like solve this. So that was one thing. And the second thing was um, realizing that I have this like really unique perspective where I've been on the business side with like sponsorships and growth and stuff but also have, have like an interest in the creative stuff with art and all. And how do you merge those stories, right? Because a lot of creators think it's separate. Like business people know something they don't and business people think creators don't know something they don't. And I want to merge those stories. And I didn't see anyone was doing that. So I was like, all right, I'm going to create that. So like that's been actually the most fun thing is, for example, having someone like Sahil Lavingya who started Gumroad, having a conversation with him where we're talking about art and just like the the focal point in paintings and all of these different things. And then switching over to like the WeWork S1 and him wanting to build a billion dollar company. Like how do you merge those worlds? So when did you start to get the thoughts together of what the show would be, what the name would be, and who you, you wanted to start having early on as guests? I decided probably towards the end of October. So it's all come together really yeah, fast. Um, I remember I went to an event in September a business conference and literally I was like, yep, I'm going to build a agency that represents podcasters and be the guy behind the scenes for the next five, 10 years. And two months later, it's like, nope, actually it's switching. <laughs> um, so I met a friend and she produces a podcast for a different company and we both wanted to start one. We're like, let's do like an accountability thing where you're going to work your on yours. I'll work on mine and we'll do it together. Mm-hmm. And then literally like a month and a half later, we launched or maybe a little more time. But uh, for guests, I was, and I think, Sharing this, I realized my podcast experience and expertise, like from like the last 10 years, mm-hmm. makes my experience not a typical experience. Mm-hmm. So like if you're starting a podcast, do not expect this to happen, <laughs> right? Result, results I may had, differ. <laughs> yeah, because I think like one of the big things was like, for example, just reaching out to the podcast clients I worked with being like, hey, how do you do this the, this part? And be- again, because I had that relationship, they're like, here's our thing, right? Like with Mixergy, I mean like, Andrew, like how do you manage the booking thing? They're like, here's our booking process that he's built over like a long time. 
already knew growth, already had relationships with guests. So really following my own curiosity and just people I already knew. Um, so you, one of the first guests you had on was um, Phil, Phil Towell. Is that pronounced that? Phil Towell. Phil Towell. Phil Towell. Who's, uh, Towell. who's uh, worked with uh, Metallica. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so is there a reason why you decided to, to kick off with, with that specific conversation? Yeah, I, I call Phil the sensei amongst senses. Yeah. Yeah, so actually, the conference that I mentioned, and this is, again, it's been just all of these crazy things connecting. I was at this conference, and I met someone towards the end, which, by chance, who introduced me to a friend of his because I told him I was looking for scraping advice. And he just kind of remembered and was like, here, talk to my friend. We didn't really talk about work, and we both were like, we got on, I got on a call with his friend, Eric. We're like, we think really similarly. Like, do you know other people like that? He's like, nope. And so the next day, he like sends me an email being like, hey, want to meet my performance coach? Because he was working with Phil. Mm. And just looking at Phil's background, I was like, sure, right? And I actually remember this. I went to Phil's website because in our world, of like especially the IM marketing world, yeah. there's a lot of like performance coaches, right? <laughs> like they haven't done anything. I remember going to Phil's website and I started looking at the case studies and I didn't know who the first two were. So it was this company, which now I realize is a public company. Second one was Rascal Flats. And I was like, I don't know what this is. Not the singer, yeah. And yeah, and the third one was Metallica. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is real. So I got on a call with Phil, and this is probably the second or third week of September. Mm -hmm. And he basically goes, and I told him, like, yeah, like I'm work with creators behind the scenes or whatever. He goes, I don't think you're the behind the scenes guy. I think you're more of a front man. Oh. And and like I I did coaching with him, and that was actually one of the genesis of me now switching to like being behind the mic yeah and so when that happened i was like he has to be the first guest <laughs> like there's no question how do you prepare for the interviews um and, and so what talk a little bit about what you might do either from prep work or um how, how does the conversation flow go uh in terms of what, what you have in mind and again I, th I think there's a lot of different ways to do this i know podcasters who don't do any prep versus like mixer g where there's a whole prep team that does a pre-interview with every guest mm -hmm. and like a lot it's very highly produced in that sense uh, i'm gonna give okay i'm gonna give away this hack that i figured out so what i've done and i didn't realize how well this worked until i did it in a couple of interviews and before i was like should i keep this a secret but i'm like no this is i'll give this abundance one. mindset <laughs> yeah exactly so I, what i do is especially with guests that i know i find someone close to them right like who's worked with them and i go to them and i'm like okay I ask them a few questions. I'm like, you've probably heard a lot of their podcasts, especially if they're on the person's team. What is something, what, what are the things that they're always asked about, that they always talk about? Because I'm like, I'm not going to ask that question, yeah. right? Because otherwise people just go into the same stuff. And then I ask them, okay, what are things that they should be asked about that they're not asked about? So that gives me topics that they haven't gone That's into, great. but they, they want to talk about. And the third one, which is the most important one, which is, what do you, you've known them for so long? What are you curious about? Hmm. Because if someone already knows them and has already had conversations mm -hmm. and they came up with something, it's like really deep stuff, right? Because it's based on that relationship. So those gives me some, those give me like four, like usually I like have like four themes and a few questions. And then I, I accidentally did this in an interview recently and it worked really well. So I'm going to do it in every interview. I basically go, yeah. So, and I think actually Tim Ferriss has done that in a lot of interviews. I, when I asked the question, I'm going, yeah, so I actually spoke with someone who's really close to you. I was told to ask you this question <laughs> because then they're like, wait, 
who did you talk to? Exactly. And what's the question? I, I don't tell them that, right? But I think like it's what I'm really trying to do is like capture stories that they haven't told everywhere else. And this sort of like is a small hack to get to that. Because then I'll start with those. I remember um, I did this with a friend and he was like, the next day he was like, hey, so all those questions that we kind of came up with, did you end up using any of them? And I was like, I started with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it just completely changed the interview. Yeah. And it shows, I think, for people that have been on a lot of shows, it really makes them realize that this is not going to be your typical interview. And mm -hmm. it's it, it sort of, they appreciate when you've done the research, they appreciate when you bring up something or you've listened to something or, or researched their content. Because you can hear it in their in what they say. They're like, oh, I can see you've done your research. Or, oh, no one's ever asked me that. I mean, every podcaster wants that, oh, no one's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> yeah, or like, that's a great question, right? Yeah, exactly. I remember when I, actually, I'll share two stories on that. I remember when I interviewed James Altucher, um, who's done many podcasts and is a host himself. Yeah. I asked the question, I was like, that's a great question. That's a great question. And in the middle at some point he goes, that's a really great question. I keep saying that, but these are all really good questions. And I was like, I'm doing something right. And that's one. And the second one is I interviewed um, a company we were talking about right before this, um, Vlad, who's the CEO of Webflow. Yeah. And um, he actually, if you go on his Twitter, there's this like thread where he talks about his journey. So he's like 2004, had the idea for Webflow. 2006, graduate, like just kind of like how it took him 15 years to get to where he is now, where they raised all this money. What I did was I went into it, started reading all the responses. And in some of the responses, he actually shared screenshots from, uh, I think, a paper that he wrote in college about like the idea from Webflow. Wow. So I, I think I literally started the interview or very five, five minutes in. I was like, so I found this paper that you wrote. And you said this, and I read like what he wrote, right? Because I like have those in my notes. And yeah, I think it just showed a different level of prep. And I think it makes the guests feel that their time is being valued too. Totally. Where does that come from? Because I've, what I've noticed in, the, in our conversation, a common thread is you have a way of thinking of ideas that are outside the box. You don't settle for like normal and you're always looking to improve yourself. So like, where, where does that drive come for you? I think it's probably an immigrant mindset, mm -hmm. right? Like growing up in India, um, it, country of like billion people, and most people, and I knew where you were young that, that I was going to come to the US, but if you don't, especially if you're in like computer science or the sciences, there's this one test that everyone takes like across the country for IIT, which is like the best university in India yeah. and very few people get in. So, so this, this story of like, Oh, not everyone's going to make it. And the effort they put in is what's going to translate to results. So just work, working harder than like most people. And then, um, moving to the U S like the story of like, I made it right. Like not a lot of people are able to do this. So there's a responsibility that comes with it. And if you're doing something, you have to prepare. Like I, I, for me, trying to do something where I haven't prepared is so unnatural because that's what I'm just used to. Mm. But what I realize now is the preparation that I do in certain things goes beyond what most people would think. Like I remember um, when I first started working with Andrew, um, I, I remember reading this quote from Patio11, who's like very well known on Hacker News, or a statement where like, if you're working with a client, know their business better than them. I was like, okay. That's good. So I started working with Andrew and I, I think for the first year, had a search set up, which was Andrew Warner or Mixergy. I wasn't doing marketing, but any tweet or anything that someone publicly said about Mixergy 
or to Andrew, I was reading that. So I would sometimes like when we were working there, go to the office and be like, hey, that was a really cool thing that you told that person. And he's like, who the fuck are you, right? Like probably he's like, why are you reading all of this? Yeah, stalking But me. I think it's just like, I, sorry? Cyber stalking me. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's just this idea of like being really prepared. And and for me, like when I see people aren't prepared, I'm like, that's one thing that's under your control. Mm. How much time you spend for us, how much research you do, how many books you read. Yeah. And I think if, if we have this opportunity, um, you can see behind me, there's all these books. Like if you have this opportunity and time to work on this stuff, why not give it a hundred percent? It's like having this natural curiosity and, and always looking to improve yourself and, 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 and learn. There's so much you have to, you also have to be a good like collator of content because there's so much now you have to be able to separate the shitty advice from like something that can actually help you because everyone, everyone now has advice on how you can grow. Everyone now has marketing advice. And so you got to be really selective. It's the, I just got into online business and six months later, here's my course on how to start an online business. And I now feel actually, I think like there should be like a time limit. Like, like you have to be doing it for like, and I actually, I'm not completely sure if I agree with what I'm saying, but I think there's so many people now that are selling advice yeah. who don't have experience. And I exactly. think there should be some sort of limit or yeah. some qualifier. Cause like one of the things I now look for when I, in terms of like who I'm listening to is like, just how long have they been doing this and do they actually have like demonstrated results? So what's been the experience so far for you in recording and publishing these episodes and these interviews? What have you, I mean, it's, I know it's not like a, a ton so far, but what have you learned just from, just from even starting episode zero and, and what you're learning as you proceed with the show? Yeah, I, I actually have like very clear lessons already that I think will be very important for newer podcasters. So like one was this idea that um, I remember I was recording a podcast with a friend and he was like, what does conscious creators mean? I was like, crap, I hadn't <laughs> thought of that. And what I've realized about this now is um, when you're creating something, all of us expect to have all the answers before. Yeah. And then we start creating. What I'm now learning is you actually have to start and then you start finding the answers, right? So like for me, what conscious creators means has evolved as I do more interviews because I learned something from James Altucher and something from this other person. Like, oh, like that's actually like from their journey, this is what is a principle that what the conscious creator is. So that's probably the the first one. I think the second one was um, this idea around expectations. I didn't realize until I spoke actually with Charlie Owen and I said something, I'm like, yeah, like working with the people that we worked with, we had really warped expectations. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, <laughs> someone else now gets it. Yeah. Right? Because when you're working with people at the top and I think there was a part of me that was like, I want to take this show to number one. And that's not that's not a good expectation to have when you're starting something new. We did hit the charts afterwards, but that was just because of marketing stuff that I had learned over the long time, which again, very atypical. But um, just idea of like changing expectations and instead of like trying to hit big numbers, just seeing one, like what was the guest experience? So like when guests started saying the questions are really good. Yeah. And then when I, when I got feedback on like individual episodes from people I knew, um, they were like, oh, yeah, you, I like how you asked this question. I'm like, okay, I'm on the right track and I want to do this for a long time. Because I think a lot of times when we don't see results right away, we give up, right? But it's like, it's about like finding those like micro kind of like successes to keep you going. Because in this world of like hitting all of these big numbers and stuff, we forget the responsibility we have as podcasters, which is telling stories. Mm. And sometimes one story, if it changes one person's life, yeah. it's important. It doesn't have to, not everything has has to reach thousands or millions of people 
You had uh, Catherine La- uh, Laverion. Catherine Laverion. We mm-hmm. were actually we took the foundation course. This is like four years ago now, and so I and and we met briefly at a meetup. So I'm I'm looking forward to hearing that. I'm I'm, I'm happy with the success that she's had. But I think it's Dane. Tom, I forgot his name now. Dane. He re- Dane. Dane Maxwell and Andy. Dane, yeah, yeah, yeah. The foundation. The foundation. I took that. I, I joined the foundation. This is one of my early like. I was trying everything digital marketing <laughs> in the beginning, and I tried the foundation. It was pretty helpful. So I'm looking forward. And, and that was actually that's another lesson in general, not just about podcasting. Yeah. You'll see a lot of people break through in podcasting, right? Like my show because of the marketing stuff that we did, like it hit number twenty five on the charts across all US, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. But I think what people don't see is the 10 years I spent learning marketing and, and doing stuff for other people. In your case, like people will see your success. They don't see all yeah. like, I don't, I don't know how successful the foundation was for you, but like all the other stuff that you've tried. Yeah. Right. And I think like, anyone kind of like is going like this, like I'm making my hand go up and do the right. Yeah, yeah. They have this like tail end of like just doing the work before Yeah. because people just expect success right away. And, and it can happen, but you also just have to put in the time. You have to like put in the apprenticeship and just learn stuff. Who would you say in your uh, in your family has been most surprised by the success you've had? Uh, me. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, a good. One. No, I don't know actually who, but I think I mean I've been surprised with like what's just happened in the last yeah. six months. Yeah. Is there a, a relationship with a mentor, maybe someone you haven't mentioned, that's been important for you as well? Um, I think definitely Phil kind of like showing me mm. that um, switch. Andrew, for sure, right? Like yeah. I got into podcasting and he gave me a shot. And like that's what led to it. Um, another one of my mentors, um, Rajesh Sethi, who's written a lot of books and mm-hmm. is an advisor to a bunch of companies like Mindvalley. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm trying to distill a principle down. And actually, I think the principle would be this is finding people who are in their like 40s or 50s who are way ahead of the game yeah and going to them for advice because they give such a different perspective right like um i remember one of my uh, another favorite podcasts like chris lockhead follow your different uh being on a call with him and he taught him sharing a story about how like and i can't share that story actually but just a story about how because of the reputation he's built like how things happen with him right and him talking about like how important that reputation is and just learning from them. Yeah, I think too many people uh, are afraid to ask for help. And there's a lot of folks that have had a lot of success in their business and in their careers. And now they're ready to give back. And I think they're just eager to work with people who, who want to learn from them. And, and I think they, they really see it as a as a, a badge of honor to be asked to to mentor and so i think there's there's probably tons of people out there who have run successful businesses and had a lot of success um and are ready to sort of pass the torch on to a, a younger generation yeah and, and i think here's like three tactical things that people can do um that i've done that have helped me accelerate one is if you're listening to a podcast or reading a book and you like what the person says send them a thank you oh yeah Right, like, because people don't get those. Second is not only send them a thank you, ask them a question, but then actually implement what they told you and let them know in two weeks. Because I think like mm. the number of people that reach out and say thank you is super small. Yeah. The number of people actually like ask you for advice and then do it is way smaller. Right. And I think like people don't do that anymore. And the third one is, and I remember doing this when I first moved to California. I didn't have money to pay for conferences and stuff. So what I would just do is volunteer for conferences 
So if if you're in an industry where everyone's getting together and you don't have, have money to pay for it, like podcast movement or whatever, mm-hmm. just email them and be like, hey, can I just come and help and volunteer? Oh yeah. Um, because no one does that again. Very, very, very good information, and I'm sure people are taking copious notes <laughs> on this interview. Uh, a couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? It's still evolving, but how I want to play in the podcasting game. And and I think, like, I'm sure you've had these conversations where I think there's a lot of people out there who think, like, podcasts are maturing, mm-hmm. Right. And I remember having a conversation with some, so I, last week I got, which another one of those like crazy instances, like got invited to like Sundance movie festival. And I remember having a conversation with someone who was a creative director at a really big company. And I was like, yeah, like people are saying like podcasts are maturing. And he goes, yeah, if a four year old baby is mature. Um, and it's just like so <laughs> early days where I think people think that everyone has the answers. They don't. Most people are still experimenting and yeah. what's going to be pioneered in the next five, 10 years is going to be insane. So just sort of like once I realized that my mindset shifted from, oh, wait, other people have the answers. I need to figure out what they know to, oh, this is this is early days and there's room to experiment. There's room to try new things and no one knows what this is going to look like in like five years. People have a hypothesis, but it, it's early days. Yeah, in, in a ways, it's similar to like you know you what you were seeing when you came out to San Francisco, like the gold rush of the dot com, and what would later become all these Web 2.0 companies. A lot of that is happening. You know, even though podcasting has been around since 2005, 2006, I think the maturity level and the amount of money that's coming in have it positioned to just even have like even another hockey stick in terms of bump and growth. Yeah, and I think like there's different like modalities. Like people are now building brands around podcasting and then building a whole ecosystem. I think that's something I'm excited about. And I think just innovating on the product, right? Like yeah. I've seen people build that are building apps for products that are way more integrated. So for example, yeah. when you're listening to a podcast and someone mentions an ad, why isn't there a pop-up that you just click and go to the advertiser, right? Like stuff like that. And mm. yeah, it's, I think there's going to be social networks around podcasting. Um, so you can connect yeah. with people. Um, one of them is actually listen. They did really well on product hunt mm-hmm. when they initially launched. Yeah. I think there's, it's just early days still. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? Ooh, that's a great question. I think recently it's probably people, a lot of people think like, I'm, and I think this actually applies to a lot of creators and podcasters, that I'm super extroverted. And a lot of podcasters I know are super introverted. So they love being behind the mic, yeah. but when they're at an event, they're like, leave me alone kind of thing. Um, yeah and people think they're super super extroverted because they hear them talking all the time so they just naturally want to come up and like Mm -hmm. socialize with them but it's usually the opposite well Sachit thank you for uh, making the time this was a really fascinating conversation I think uh, the listener learned a lot about what's happening in the podcasting space and 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 your story is super inspirational so I'm really happy that uh, we got a chance to connect and and I appreciate you taking the time um, and, and sharing your story with this with my audience yeah, thank you for having me on. And if you're still listening, definitely let us know what you thought. Like if you email, yeah. we'll respond. What's the best way for people to connect with you and to, to find the show? The URL is just creators.show. Or if you uh, are on the podcast apps, just search Conscious Creators, which I realized afterwards, conscious is a really hard word to spell. Because <laughs> I saw a few friends do it and I was like, uh, I messed that one yeah, up. Yeah, I have yeah. to like probably do some SEO stuff or change the name. Yeah. Um, and my email is just my first and last name at gmail.com. Reach out and yeah, I'll respond.
Okay. Well, thanks for taking the time and uh, I appreciate you sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. So thanks again to Sachit for coming on the show. I really love his story of how he got started. When you think about all the things that he did in the beginning, how resourceful he was and how he knew that his perceived career trajectory uh, was not where he's going to end up because uh, he was being called to something bigger and something better and pulled out west like a lot of folks are in the digital marketing and the tech world and just realizing you know he needed to add value early on a lot of value in order for him to get noticed and it's just one of the reasons why I really really love his story and I'm looking forward to continuing my friendship and partnership with Sachit so stay tuned uh, for some good things to come. Thanks again to this week's sponsor, Focusrite, and the wonderful line of the Scarlet 2i2 3G sound cards. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Podcast production and marketing by Fullcast.co. As always, you can support the show and everything we do through your patronage using the link in the show notes, which will redirect you to glow.fm. Astute listeners will be aware that last week I teased out an episode with Chavi Sakdev. And that's actually going to be next week's episode. So I had to do a little bit of episode rotation. Still excited to bring that amazing episode to you. She is the second podcaster ever in India. And we get a really in-depth peek at what's happening inside the world of podcasting in India. If you made it this far, you're no doubt looking for the retention hashtag. And I will not disappoint. Let's go with creator Sachit. So it's the word creator and Sachit, S-A-C-H-I-T. Let us know that you are a true podcast junkie. As always, thank you for everything you do to support the show. I'm always indebted to you, my listener, because I appreciate with all the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of podcasts in the Apple Podcast ecosystem, the fact that you take the time to listen to this one is something that I don't take for granted and I don't take a lightly. So love you, each one of you listening. Have a fantastic week.